Welcome back everyone to another episode of Rose Buzz. I'm Seema Singh, a PhD candidate in the Department of City and Regional Planning and a graduate resident fellow in South Baker. And I'm Tom, Thomas Cressy, whatever you'd like to call me, a PhD candidate in the music department and a graduate residence fellow in Rose May. Today, we're very lucky to be in conversation with our house fellows, Ryan Lombardi and Ken Roberts. We would like to allow our house fellows the chance to briefly introduce themselves to our students, although I'm sure you probably need no introduction, but would you like to go first, Ryan? Sure, I'd be glad to. Thanks, Tom, and thanks, Seema. Ken, good to see you. Hi, everyone. Good evening. My name is Ryan Lombardi. I currently serve as the Vice President for Student and Campus Life here at Cornell. This is my sixth year in that role. Um, came to Cornell in August of 2015, and um, in that capacity, have the opportunity to support the try to support the student experience through a, a large number of the activities and services that are provided outside of the classroom environment, outside of the academic environment. And so, um, glad to be here with you tonight. Love being a house fellow at Rose, and appreciate all the good work that the team at Rose does. So, hi everybody. I'm Ken Roberts, and I'm also one of the uh, house fellows. And it's it's been a pleasure to be a a fellow uh, for the last couple of years. And even when we have to go virtually, it's not quite quite the same as having the the dinners in the dining hall and everything, uh, something that we miss, but uh, it's been nice to be a, a house fellow. I'm a professor in the government department. I teach comparative uh, and Latin American politics. And I'm also the director of the Latin American studies program um, at, at the Inaudi Center um, here at Cornell. I've been at the university for 16 years now and um, looking forward to a, a few more at least. So thanks for the invitation to share with you all tonight. Thank you. Thank you both for agreeing to come and speak to us today. It is really a privilege for us to have you here as part of our program. Some of our residents may not have seen or met either of you before. So this conversation should give them a good opportunity to get to know you a little bit better and also what you do at Cornell. So I'll, I'll get into some of the, the questions we've prepared, but I'll, I'll just say at the outset that at any point, Ryan or, or Ken, you're welcome to jump in and ask further questions or respond to each other at, at any point. But um, as Seema said, we've got a, a couple of questions to help give our students a better idea of your background and your role at Cornell. So the first one is for Ryan and, um, I don't, we, we've talked about this before, like your background and you, you, you started by studying music, right? Like, like me, we were, like you, yes. <laughs> but uh, you were into music education and uh, you were at Westchester university. I was, I was there a while ago and I saw the, the um, Samuel Barber house and it, it was a very nice town. And I, I was just wondering like, what drew you to music in the first place? And then, what made you, I suppose, change course from music education that gradually led you into a focus on university administration, both in your graduate study and in your career since then? Sure, thanks for the question. Um, yes, I, it was my aspiration to be a music teacher. I wanted, I'd hoped to be a high school band director when I finished college. And that's, that was the, the career path that I had uh, set myself on. If anyone ever saw the movie, it's a bit old and I'm showing my age perhaps a little bit, Mr. Holland's Opus, if you might remember that movie with Gene Dreyfus. Um, that was kind of the, the, the model there. But I, when I was in, uh, a young boy, I guess, middle school or about, you know, I was, I think maybe like many people at that point in their lives, really struggling to 
find myself and figure out my identity and find my place and build confidence in all of those types of things. I, I happen to be the youngest of three children in my family. Um, my two older brothers were much more physically fit and more physically oriented. You know, they were great athletes, uh, very handsome, good looking guys. And I was, you know, not, and I was the, the, the awkward one. And so I struggled a lot as a, a kid and a middle schooler trying to figure out um, myself and trying to find myself. And when I started to get involved with music and started to have some success with that and, and, and have a little bit of talent with that, it really helped me um, develop my own confidence and my own sense of self and my own sense of self-worth. So for me, music was really that catalyst to let me um, evolve as a human and let me kind of strengthen and find value in what I was bringing to our family at the time and what I was bringing as a, as a young person kind of growing up and figuring out who I was. And so, uh, and I just kind of never look back because, you know, when you're that age, you look for things that not only give you pleasure, but that have positive reinforcement for you. And that was music for me. And so um, I pursued that. I pursued that to go to college um, because that's, you know, was kind of my singular focus through high school. Wasn't an exceptional student, but I, I did everything related to music um, all the time and, and, and did, did well and had success in that regard. And so went off to do that. When I was in college studying music, uh, I, I loved it. And I, my instructors and, and the education I got, um, at Westchester, which for those of you who don't know, it's a, it's a regional public institution. It's a, a former state normal school. It was a, these are universities that really originated out of trying to produce future teachers uh, in the US and so, um, but evolved into a university. So it's a regional access-based institution, but I had a, just a tremendous experience there. And um, my experience as an undergraduate really changed my life. Not only what I was studying to be a music teacher, but the things I got involved with outside of the classroom, different student leadership activities, I was a resident advisor uh, in residence life, and I worked in a number of different student leadership capacities that really started to open my eyes to some different options for my future career. And I had the chance and the opportunity to build close mentoring relationships with the Dean of Students and the Vice President for Student Affairs at my alma mater. And, you know, at some point in that journey, they opened my eyes to other opportunities and said, you know, you can dedicate your life to education, but you could think about educating students in a way other than through music, and that's through their experiences at university uh, and specifically in the life outside the classroom at a university, because that's the part of my university experience that really changed my life and my outlook and my framework of how I view the world and how I interact with the world. And I thought that might be something really wonderful to dedicate my life to. And I've never looked back. And so I've been trying to, to foster growth and learning experiences for students outside of the classroom ever since. And it's tremendously rewarding. And I love doing it here at Cornell. I've been in a number of other institutions, but Cornell students are really special. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that uh, interesting journey of yours. On very similar lines, can uh, you pursued international relations and political science. So I want uh, to ask you this. Uh, can you share a little bit about your educational journey? Uh, did you always think of becoming a professor, teaching politics? What was it? like when you were a student and how that has changed over the years? Yeah, that, uh, you know, I think I've taken a number of twists and turns, or at least early in, in my life as I was coming through college and trying to figure out, uh, you know, what I really wanted to do. Um, I mean, I'll, I'll be honest and confess, I actually went to college largely to play baseball. I was an athlete as, as a youth and, you know, had had dreams of uh, 
you know, of making a living on a baseball field. And, and I guess graduate school and being an academic was my plan B. Uh, I, did, I, didn't, I didn't make it to the major leagues and didn't, didn't get very close to it. But I ended up, uh, go, as I was going through my undergraduate studies, um, and I, I didn't really know what I, was, what I wanted to study initially. I had no particular academic um, course that I, that I was following, but I was always interested in larger public affairs and social issues. And I found myself drawn to the, and maybe as we, you know, having been a kid, I was, I was too young to really experience the 60s. And so I, I wasn't a, at the age where I was part of the movements and the protests and all the mobilization that was going on. But I remember as a kid being interested in it and just being kind of vaguely aware uh, there were big things going on in the world that I didn't fully understand, but I wanted to know more about what was going on at that time period. Um, and so as I went on through high school and then on into college, and I found myself, I was studying sociology and then took a liking to international relations and studying issues of war and peace and international development, trying to understand why do you have rich countries and poor countries and what is it about the international economy that, that shapes that? Um, and so anyway, I began studying these larger kinds of, kinds of issues. And I also began to get involved, um, yeah, I guess you could say in student activist circles. I mean, this was the late, the late 1970s, then early 1980s. And I, I, I spent a summer in Mexico working on a development project. And it was in Mexico that I, and we encountered refugees from Central America who were working their way through Mexico trying to get up to the United States many, many years ago. So, I mean, the issues we see today are hardly new. It was going on then. And that was when Central America, much of Central America was at war, at, at civil wars. And I got involved in basically the, some of the uh, activist networks supporting human rights issues um, and networks that were increasingly critical of US foreign policy in Central America. So in particular, under the Reagan administration in the 1980s. So I became involved in a lot of activist political work around Central American issues um, as I was finishing up college. And then as I moved into grad school, I was studying international relations and political science, but I kind of gravitated towards the region where I had, become, where I had, uh, had begun to get very active uh, through these activist networks. And so I found myself increase, increasingly specializing my studies in Latin America. Um, and so ultimately I ended up getting, getting my PhD. Um, I, I went out to Stanford to get, to get my doctorate and, um, and ended up specializing in Latin American politics. And I kind of moved further south. I started out in Central America, but then moved down to the Andean region of South America. And I studied uh, Peru and Chile and Argentina and other countries in South America. So, uh, but basically I, I ended up, I, I'm sort of a, a, the kind of case, I guess, where my academic interests were, were heavily conditioned by other things that I was doing, other kinds of passions that I had and commitments um, and the kinds of activist work that I was doing out, outside of the academic sphere. Um, and so that's, I think for people of my generation working on Latin America, that was a fairly common experience. Um, there were a lot, of, a lot of activist networks that were involved in the 1980s around the Central American issues. And so for people who are interested in 
um, in those largest, larger is issues around human rights and war and peace, uh, there was a pull, a pulling of people towards uh, the study of, of Latin America in a lot of ways. So anyway, that's kind of the, the path that I took. And, you know, it's not, it's not what I thought I was going to do as I was starting into college. Um, but sometimes you, you uh, face these forks in the road and you make choices and you end up doing something that you never would have imagined. Uh, when you first started out down that path. Thank you very much for sharing that. I'm I'm smiling because uh, Seema and I had talked about what questions to prepare and we actually were going to ask about student activism and I see that that's featured already so much in your story. So I look forward to asking that. But just beforehand, you know, before we go into the kind of now at Cornell, I, I would just like to um, mention a little bit about Ryan Lombardi's background that I, I saw that before you came to Cornell, you were at uh, Ohio University and you were named administrator of the year for consecutively for, for many years and also at Cornell here when you came here. So this this story, like you're going into university administration, you, you obviously extremely successful in it. And um, I wonder what made you come to Cornell? You've already mentioned that you feel there's something special about Cornell and the students and perhaps what's your, your favorite part of the job at Cornell? Well, what made me come and what's my favorite part of the job? I mean, that um, you, you hope in your, your career, regardless of the, your chosen path that you have opportunities and that you have flexibility as your career evolves. I mean, that's certainly uh, a nice place to be. And that was certainly the case for me as, as I thought about making this transition. And so you know, when Cornell, I, I actually do have a little bit of a funny story about this. The first time that Cornell called and said, hey, we've, this job is open. My, my predecessor was very successful, Vice President um, Susan Murphy retired. And they said, you know, we're going to have this opening. Would you consider? Uh, my first reaction was actually no way, because <clears throat> my partner actually grew up in Syracuse, New York, and had made me swear to her that I would never move her back to upstate New York. <laughs> so um, before I even considered it or talked to her or anything like that. I, I just figured I'd better be safe and say no, but um, obviously I didn't in the end say no. And, and as I considered the opportunity and got to know a little bit more about this place, I think what, what really drew me to it were, were a couple things. I mean, you know, a great institution where the, the very brightest students would be drawn and would be here to study, but at the same time, an institution, unlike so many of our peers, that really is fundamentally rooted in a quest for uh, equity and belonging and inclusion, um, even if not always accomplishing that or not always perfect in, in realizing that goal, really striving and, and built on those principles, which is is very much unlike our, our peers and our counterparts. Um, so, and, and, and that combined with our land grant mission and, and our commitment to the public good and to public engagement, um, really drew me in the chance to work with really bright students, really motivated students who also believed in something bigger, I think, and, and were committed to something more than just the experience they would receive out of coming to a place like Cornell. Uh, so that's, you know, there were a lot of things too. I mean, you, you, you know, when you make these life decisions, you know, could my family, you know, be good here? And, and if it could, could this be the kind of place we have middle school age children right now, could, you know, we envision raising the kids here. And um, I was actually our former president, Beth Garrett, I was her first hire before she actually was even inaugurated. And so there's just lots of things that you, you know, you consider in these roles, but it was really the, the heart and soul of, of Cornell and getting a chance to meet some of the students during my interview process. Um, and, and my favorite part, look, you know, my job is, 
uh, probably misunderstood a lot. Um, I don't just send emails and I don't just, you know, whatever. I, you know, I'm an educator at heart and I believe in trying to help students fulfill uh, and get the very most out of their, their college experience, their Cornell experience. It's what me and my team get up every day thinking about. We're not just bureaucrats. We're not just, you know, um, people in suits and day hall or whatever, whatever the perception is, you know, and we get lumped in this administration category, but we really consider ourselves educators and people that are trying to support the academic mission of this institution and trying to help students become their best selves. And, and watching students and being on that journey with students at a very individual level is what I enjoy the most. In my role, I, I see things and, and experience Cornell sometimes at a very macro level, but I remain deeply committed to forming individual relationships with students, very close connections. Um, I feel like I can't be a successful leader if I don't have my feet kind of firmly planted on the ground and understand the student experience and connect deeply with students. And I try to do that as much as possible. And um, that takes you on a journey and on a roller coaster, frankly. And I try to put myself in the, the experiences of my students. And that means the, the low moments and that means the high moments and everything in between. Um, and I think doing that and, and opening myself to those experiences and opening my heart to feel what they feel or opening my mind to listen to their experiences, their lived experiences, hopefully informs my work and, and makes me better at what I do. And so if, if there's anything and, and um, that I would hope that uh, students that have a chance to get to know me uh, and I realize that's not all or probably even most of, of our students, given just the size of our institution. I think they would all say, I, I hope they would all say that I care deeply about them as people and as humans and, and what their experience is. And that I very much sincerely want for them to have the best experience possible. And, and I love going on those journeys with our students and I love watching their, I don't, you know, I don't always enjoy watching the, their challenges, but I love to see them make their way through them and, and navigate them in the process of growth that happens in those experiences. Uh, I'm gonna just follow up quickly. How, how can students reach out to you on a personal level? Uh, and how do you interact with students in that sense? So. Absolutely, well, I, um, they can, I mean, if in normal circumstances, I would say stop by my office or say hi when I'm on campus, but more lately, it's really been, you know, send me an email. I'm the only one that looks at my email. I don't have people reading my email, answering my email, filtering it. If you send the one to ryan.lombardi and say, I'd love to connect, we'll figure out a time to connect. I've been doing it with students via Zoom. Uh, I'll do it when we're in person. We'll, we'll grab lunch, we'll grab a coffee, we'll get to know each other, and we'll form a relationship like that. Um, I was reminded of this. I, I've done this a number of times with a number of students during um, the current circumstances, unfortunately via Zoom. And, and um, you know, that allows me then to continue that. These are both, for, uh, or a couple of them are first year students, two that I'm thinking of in particular, first year students. And, you know, hopefully we'll stay connected for the next four years. But um, that happens, it, it's more, it's, you have to be more intentional right now, but, um, uh, once we're through COVID, it'll be a little easier, but please just send me a note and we can connect and get to know each other and talk and have a conversation. So um, going back to Ken and activism, how do you think Ken activism both at the student level and also at the societal level uh, has kind of changed over the last few years? How does it shape higher education or things that in society in general? And especially with introduction of social media, how things have changed over the years, if you could share uh, your thoughts around that. It's an interesting question because I, I think that we tend to go through cycles. Um, in fact, so social mobilization and protest as someone who, 
who teaches courses on social protest or what, what we often call contentious politics. And that's one of the things we try to understand is the sort of the nature of the cyclical flow. Why, what are the conditions that induce people who ordinarily are engaged in other kinds of private activities, but what draws them into the public sphere and induces people uh, to participate in a march or to join an organization or to, you know, to, you know, to, to write a letter uh, to engage in some, some sort of protest activity or, you know, even to, you know, to send messages around by on the social, uh, you know, through the social media. So a lot of different ways in which people get involved, but you do tend to see cyclical patterns. Um, and I think in some ways we've gone through over the last couple of years, uh, there's a new wave of, of activism that we've seen. In fact, some of the, some of the empirical work uh, of sociologists and political scientists who, who work on social protests. Some of the empirical work shows that the year uh, 2020, or the year 2019, right before the pandemic, uh, was it set records for the, the largest number of social protests around the world uh, compared to any other time period, and uh, even compared to the 1960s. Um, and one of the reasons for that is clearly uh, the social media and the role that it plays in, in allowing people to connect and to communicate and to turn people out very quickly. And so in some ways, social media allow us to overcome what we call the, the coordination problems, problems of social coordination uh, that are involved in, in any process of trying to get people to engage uh, in some sort of collective action. And so the social media clearly have made it easier for folks to get together and, and to mobilize and engage in collective action. But also there seems to be a trade-off because oftentimes the organizational substance um, tends to be rather thin. And so in some way it makes it easier to get people together and to assemble, uh, but it doesn't necessarily translate into sustained forms of social and political organization, whether it's in civil society or in or institutional political spheres where you can really begin to have an impact on governments and public policy. Uh, so there's a lot of work that is being done to, to try to, to understand those dynamics and the kinds of trade-offs that, that you often see. Uh, but I think in general, uh, we've seen uh, that there are, and you see this certainly around Cornell, there are so many students who are involved in so many different ways, whether it's a social movement, or it may just be a, a civic organization or a student organization of some sort. But I'm often amazed when students come to me and, and talk about the things that they're doing outside the classroom, uh, or students that's, that I'm, I'm writing a letter of recommendation for a student who, I, who I've maybe taught in the classroom and haven't had a whole lot of other contact with, but then they, they give me their resume and I see all of the different things they've done. And it's, and it's astounding, I have to say, uh, to just see how active and how engaged the students are. And it's that's very impressive. Um, and I think that's part, and, and I know this is, this is not just only at Cornell, but I do think Cornell, along the lines of what Ryan was saying, Cornell tends to attract students who do have other interests and concerns and commitments beyond just getting a good grade and getting a job and putting themselves on, on a career path. I think that Cornell lends itself to attracting students who are engaged in the larger social and political world, the public sphere, 
beyond their own private lives. And I think that's a wonderful thing that we should celebrate. And it's, it's, it's part of what attracted me to Cornell when I moved here 16 years ago, uh, the nature of this community and this university. It was, um, it was a real selling point for me. Thank you for sharing that. And I'm, I'm surprised like how, um, how similar some of these connections are. Like I, I was looking at, at, at um, Ryan Lombardi's like history, and I, I know that you you gave papers on online social media and student activism in the university. And I was wondering if we could bring you into the conversation as well as someone who works in the administration, how you see now these issues of um, student activism and the calls for social justice. and maybe what you feel has changed since you were writing these uh, these papers at conferences um, a few years back. Yeah, and I, I would agree with a lot of what Ken has said here. And obviously he's the, the real expert and scholar in this space, but, you know, from a from kind of a practical uh, experience and, and how I've lived this here at Cornell and, and, and previously is, I would say the advent of social media, it has just, it has increased the pace uh, almost to a dizzying level sometimes of the, the various causes and the various initiatives that students will engage with. And um, I mean, on one hand, I think that's great. I mean, one of the things I kind of joke sometimes with my counterparts around the country who have similar jobs to mine is, you know, look, we always talk about college. It's a place where we want students to come so they can focus on changing the world. Right. And we can't be frustrated when they want to do that. Like that's that, as Ken said, we should celebrate that. We should celebrate their, their passion and their interest in that. And, and we really try to do that. Um, when, when, and, and I, as a member of the administration, I'm sometimes on the receiving end of some of that activism in terms of concerns being expressed or things like that. I, I will say the, the, you know, kind of the, the breadth and the volume sometimes is really hard to, to get your hands into. And, and you think about breadth versus depth, right? And really digging deeply into some of the, the issues that require, that are systemically unjust or inherently problematic in our society or at Cornell or other things like that. But it, I worry that before we can even dig deeply into solving those or, or at least making progress in them, we've moved on to a different one, you know, and we've, we've, we've shifted. And it's not that all these issues don't deserve attention, but it also takes a certain amount of continuous and persistent um, energy and effort to, to make some of the deep changes that need to happen because they, in some cases, are deeply rooted in our societies and our structures and our institutions. And, and it's not a flip the switch to, to undo them. It's gonna take time and persistence. And so, um, so that's sometimes uh, I think the challenge is, is trying to maintain that momentum and that energy. And I think one of the big misconceptions too, I'll just share from the administrative perspective is that, um, that the institution might often be at odds that, that you know, students feel like they, they want to activate around an issue and that it's, it's because the institution feels differently. And I, I would argue that's often not the case. I mean, I think most people at the institution or in, 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 in leadership roles, you know, for large part, you know, see a lot of the same problems and want to see some of the same changes, whether those are at a national level, at a, at a regional level, or even at a, at a local institutional level. It's, it's usually the, the way in which that change needs to happen or, or, or the speed at which that change needs to be rectified that is usually where the dissonance exists. And um, so I, you know, I, I will confess and, and, you know, maybe unlike Ken, I, 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 I didn't come through, I wasn't an activist in college. It's not, it's not kind of a, a space that I uh, occupied myself 
in my life, or at least in the, tr in the ways you might think of activism in the traditional sense, I, I try to use my, my privilege and my platform in a different way, which is to affect change and it's to affect policy change, um, but through slightly different tactics. And so I would really like to continue to see more uh, collaboration on that change um, and, and more um, unified might not be the right word, but you know, more of this kind of uh, collaborative effort to, 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 to work through some of the problems that we face locally and, and nationally and internationally. I think there's a, there'd be a lot more energy sometimes uh, to resolve them if we could do that. If I could maybe just add a, a point to what, to what Ryan is saying. Yeah. One, of the, one of the challenges we find, of course, is, uh, you know, for those of us who are, you know, in, in adult roles in the, in, in the university where we've been for, for quite some time and you, you, you have a, an institutional hat that you're wearing and you have certain roles and, uh, that, that, that you're expected to perform. And of course, in general, in, institutions are, are not designed to change rapidly, right? The whole, the whole nature of institutions is you have rules and procedures and standard operating procedures and things. And uh, institutions are designed to institutionalize and to set things in place. Uh, and one of the challenges then, how do we move institutions as the society around us changes and people become concerned about, about things um, and are engaging in, in the issues? And, and so how can we work within institutions to try uh, to align those institutions with the, the kinds of causes that, that, we, that we care about. And it's often very difficult for people in, in different kinds of institutional roles. But as, as Ryan was saying, I think you'll find that the, the people who are in leadership roles, uh, at a, certainly at a place like Cornell, share a lot of the same concerns and the same values and, and are interested in trying to, uh, to address those, those concerns. Uh, and trying to figure out the ways to, to bring about institutional change. And it's not easy to do that because like I said, in institutions, they certainly don't change on a dime and sometimes they don't change at all. Or it's, it's difficult to, to, to move them in a particular direction. I think those are great points, Ken. And I, you know, the, maybe this is, you know, a little flippant, but you know, the institutions of higher education have, you know, they're really some of the oldest and, and most, um, organizations with the most longevity in our country, right? And internationally too. And, and while that's good, there's also a reason for that, right? Which is this, this pace at which you talk about this pace of change and, and they've, they've, they've persevered, but they've persevered. Um, and that goes, that goes two ways. So I, I agree with that and appreciate those comments very much. Wow. So moving from the institution to the classroom level, uh, and this question is for you, Ken, some of the topics and subjects that you teach can be very sensitive, very intense and divisive as well in current times. And I wonder as a professor of government and politics, how honest can you be about your political opinions and siding in class or around students? How do you ensure that the classroom remains a safe and inclusive space where everyone can talk honestly about these issues? Yeah, this is a it's a it's a very good question, and it's um, it's an important topic and a tough topic for those of us who teach something like political science, which can be very controversial. Um, you know, so we started the spring semester within weeks of what was you know essentially a, an insurrection on the national capital, and um, you know, and I'm teaching I'm teaching a large introductory course in comparative politics. We're not 
you know, I, I've got 200 students in the class and I'm sure that out of 200 students, I've got a wide range of political positions and uh, party identifications and, and things within, within the classroom. So even though the class is not focusing on the United States, there's no way that we can talk about questions like democracy and authoritarianism and social protest in, around the world and not, not think about what does this mean for our understanding of the country in which, in which we live today. And as, in fact, as, as American democracy has become increasingly polarized in recent years, increasingly you find those of us who study other parts of the world, because I, I work on Latin America primarily, but there's more of a dialogue between people who study US politics and people who study politics in other parts of the world, just because you see more, more parallels and similarities uh, in the kinds of conflicts that you see in the United States today from what uh, you see when you study Latin America or Europe and you know, other, other parts of the world. But I think for myself in the classroom, um, you know, when I started my class this semester, I think I said the very first day of class, and I, I, I sort of pre-warned my students. And I said, listen, we're, I'm, I'm going to tell you, you know, from the very outset that we're going to read things and you're going to hear things in the classroom that I guaranteed some students are going to be upset. You're going to be offended by, because we're going to read, we're going to read authors who are going to say that a country that maybe you come from or your relatives came from or a political party you identify with or a political leader you identify with. We're going to read things that refer to them as being authoritarian. And I say, if that upsets you, that's okay. You have, you know, you're entitled to disagree. This is a classroom where people are allowed to bring their, their beliefs and their preferences and values and express them. But I said, I'm not doing my job if I insulate you from the kinds of debates we have about these questions in political science. And if, if, if the political, if the, if my profession um, is understanding a particular country or a certain party in a certain way, and it's, you know, I, it's my professional responsibility to expose you uh, to these debates. Um, and so I tried to get them from the outset to be, to open their minds and to be receptive. Um, and, it, you know, it's, it's, it's harder. I mean, it's one thing to do that in a great big lecture hall. It's another thing in the smaller discussion sections that my TAs are leading. But, um, but I think we try very hard to make sure the students are comfortable expressing different kinds of, uh, of opinions. Um, but being able to justify them and um, and to listen to what their peers and colleagues are saying um, and trying to approach it with an open mind. Thank you for sharing that. And on a similar note, I, I was thinking that as Ryan was saying earlier, it's very difficult to um, uh, bring about change when there's so much going around in, in the wider society and changes of governments and political pressures as well to deal with. And I know I've, I've known you for the, the past year and a half right now, and I know that you're always dealing with a lot every day at Cornell and, and as, as a person in this institution, um, you know, I, I realize how lucky we are to have you here at Cornell and Rose, and you've been here to support our students through the pandemic, right, right from the beginning to the end. And I wonder if you could say, um, talk about your your kind of typical daily life uh, working at Cornell and all these different political and societal forces that you have to negotiate in your job. I, yeah, I mean, it, I'm laughing because it's it's one of the reasons that um, 
I, I love this work and it's one of the, the things that attracted me to it. I thought it would be more exciting than being that high school band director. And I think that's probably the case. Um, you know, there's never kind of two of the same days, but it's hard to put a fine point on that, Tom, but, you know, I, I'll just say a couple of things. I mean, one, um, you know, first, you know, I, I do lead a, a really big team of, of talented individuals at this university that work very hard to support our students. And that team exceeds, you know, more than a thousand full-time staff and, and a lot of part-time and students have several thousand more. And so um, a lot of, uh, you know, budgets and, and space and all kinds of, you know, kind of logistical operational things. So there's an element to my job that's, you know, that is deeply kind of administrative and operational and um, just a lot of responsibility. And then, so, I, you know, I need to balance those responsibilities, the kind of fiduciary operational administrative responsibilities with, you know, the more social, political, as, as I think the word you used, you know, the responsibilities of really staying connected to the student body and keeping a pulse and trying to support um, the issues that are, you know, at the forefront of our nation that are at the forefront of our campus at any given time. And so that just means in any given day, I'm, I'm bouncing in one meeting, I might be, you know, working through uh, 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 construction documents about a new a new building or the fact that our baseball field is is moving because we're building a new CIS. You know, we got this great gift. The university got this great gift um, for the new computer and information sciences building. And can your sports, so the baseball field that's tucked in there behind gates has to move. And so, you know, it, so I might be in one meeting in one hour focusing on that and then the next meeting jumping in to a conversation about, you know, how to better support mental health to the next meeting, jumping into a conversation with some students about concerns they might be having around issues happening here in Ithaca or around the country. Um, and then back into a personnel matter with, you know, this great big staff or, you know, it, so it just, it's, it's really variable and it, um, and so it, 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 it's, it's all over the place. It usually entails an awful lot of meetings. I'm very, very done, like probably many students listening in tonight with Zoom. Um, looking at this computer screen excessively. I mean, every, all of us look at our screens a lot, but when you're doing every single meeting, every single conversation, or most of them anyway, in this fashion, and I usually have, you know, 12 to 14 meetings a day. Um, and, you know, they start early and they end late and um, not a lot of time in between to kind of catch your breath and think and be strategic and, and think about the bigger issues and, and step back and contemplate those things that are on people's minds. And so, you know, it, I'm often asked to, opine or to react to a social issue and like probably Ken feels or like, you know, you Thomas or Seema, you know, sometimes I haven't had time to process it myself and, and kind of have, have even the headspace to think through where I sit on this or how I feel about a particular issue um, just because of the kind of the dizzying pace of, of life and, and work and, you know, um, and of course, you know, trying to be a dad, trying to be a partner, trying to do all the things that, that, you know, we do in our lives and, um, but it's exciting. I love it when I have time with students. That's what's most important to me, making time to, uh, and that gives me energy uh, for sure. My staff, when we're in the office, can always tell when I've come back from a student meeting, they say I'm, I'm in a much better mood. I'm kind of bigger smile on my face, walking taller, all that stuff. So the more time I can get in those kinds of settings, either informally or formally, the better. No, this is great. Um, thank you. Thank you for all the firefighting that you do for us and the institution and keep us running. Um, Last question, Ken, for you before we open it to students. And um, I want to ask you this, how does the current policy environment uh, or the ruling government 
affect your research agenda or what you do? I've, uh, I mean, I've had my own research agenda. Uh, in some ways, I don't know if I want to say it got pulled off track, but um, but some new doors opened. Uh, I mean, I, you know, my work on Latin America, I've, I've long specialized in the study of, of what is often called populism. But I, I study a lot of, I study social movements and popular movements and the politics of inequality and the conflicts around that. Um, and um, as, as I've mentioned before, I think as, as, a, <coughs> as American politics has become increasingly polarized politically, there's a new dialogue uh, between people who specialize specialize in US politics and people who work in other parts of the world. And so um, Cornell is <coughs> actually a hub for some of the best conversations taking place about that. And so some of my colleagues here uh, with myself and then a few, a few strategically located colleagues at Johns Hopkins and other places um, have been part of a, of a dialogue. Uh, we have a, a major book coming out later this year with Cambridge University Press that looks at um, and questions of democratic uh, of polarization and democratic resiliency and tries to put the United States in a larger comparative framework. And so it's been a wonderful opportunity for me to, to be able to uh, coordinate with scholars working in, you know, really specializing in US politics and then having this cross fertilization of ideas with those of us who work on Asia, Latin America or European politics. And so in a lot of ways, my own research has been um, it's been heavily influenced by the things that are going on in American politics and just the, the daily transformations that we've seen um, in American politics in recent times. And so it's, in some ways, it's pulled me off my usual track, but it's opened new doors along the way. And it's exposed me to a very different kinds uh, of intellectual debates <clears throat> that have been very enriching for me. I mean, intellectually, it's been wonderful. It's really been fascinating. Um, and so my own, you know, I, I have the luxury in some ways of, of doing research on issues and topics that, that are constantly changing and that, that are very contemporary and, and they're, they're contentious and, and controversial in a lot of ways, but, but it keeps it very lively and entertaining and, and exciting for me. And so that's one of the things that I really like about my field is I get to I get to I get to teach and I get to research on things that I'm passionate about, and that's uh, that's not something that that everybody has, and and I feel very fortunate to be in that position. Thank you very much. I think on that note we'll open the floor to questions. But I I had one, uh, just one more for for Ryan. It was uh, you you mentioned this this funding grant that we just received, and I know, I I know that um, basically all these institutions you've been to before you've been incredibly successful in raising raising money and attracting donors and you've you've done so many great favors for cornell and other institutions i wonder if you would like to share a story or you, the most kind of interesting or weird or memorable fundraising event that you had to do i uh, that's that's a tough one i don't know that i have any great stories i'd have to dig dig deep, you know, I've not been on the fundraising trail for a while now, at least, you know, the, the way I used to know it, which is getting on planes or going down to New York City on the campus to campus bus and meeting with, with folks, you know, um, 
but yeah, raising money to support the Cornell student experience is, is a big part of my job. And, and we've had some success at that. And I'm, it, it, frankly, it's easy to do when I get to talk about students and talk about supporting students um, in the best way possible. I, you know, I think, I think for me, you know, we, we have so many generous Cornell alumni. I don't, I don't think I have a funny story or an interesting story. I, I, I'm still, you know, you talk to these people that have enormous wealth and that, you know, write really generous checks to support Cornell. And there's, there's just still a little bit of, um, it's tough sometimes to experience that, you know, as someone who, you know, went to public college and, you know, just didn't, didn't grow up with that kind of wealth or didn't, you know, am not used to being around that kind of wealth. Um, there's still some awkwardness on my part, um, when I when I'm with those people, despite their their great generosity and kindness, um, to just get my head around <laughs> their ability to do some of these things, and of course I'm grateful for it, and I'm grateful that we can pass it along to students. But um, there are sometimes times when I feel like I have to pinch myself to say, "We're really talking about seven and eight figure gifts right now," because um, usually those types of things are most people saying, "Okay, it's that's like the hit the jackpot, and I can I can hang up the cleats and call it a ball game kind of thing," right? So. It's fun though. I, I enjoy it because it's it's easy to talk about Cornell students and, and Cornellians and those that usually support our students are incredibly generous and incredibly kind and supportive. I can ask a genetic question then. What is the one thing that you love about Cornell? I love Cornell. I think it's a wonderful institution. I I I had other, you know, before I came here and, and I had I had taught for a number of years at the University of New Mexico and and had a number of opportunities to go to other places and um, and and didn't really pursue any of the other options. I, I was okay, I was happy where I was. Um, but when the Cornell option came along, it was uniquely attractive to me for some of the reasons that we talked about tonight. Um, and to be able to be, to be able to be at a, at one of the very leading academic institutions, but one that has a little bit different ethos, I think, and and is more committed to sort of the norms of social inclusion and equality than, than what you typically get at, at the Ivy League kinds of institutions. And I think that there was something different about Cornell that, that did make it uniquely attractive to me. And at the end of the day, that was the only reason why I left where I was to, to come here. What I love, I will tell you, I love Cornell football games. Um, and, and I go to Sholkoff, you know, of course we didn't get a season this past fall. Um, but you know, and, and there, there's plenty of seating to, to, to be shared when you go to a football game at Sholkoff, but I just love cheering on that team. I love the spirit. I love the energy of them. Um, and it's not just the football team. It's, it's a lot of our sports teams. I'm a big hockey fan. I have a daughter that plays hockey. Um, she's still in middle school, so she's not on the Cornell team yet, but maybe someday. I love watching hockey games at Lina. I love going to watch soccer games at the pitch out there. You, you name it. Um, I really appreciate seeing our student athletes and, and I, I appreciate doing it in Ivy League school where I think in large part, you know, there's still a good balance with sports and their, their role at a university with scholar athletes. And that's really what we have at Cornell is, is scholar athletes. Um, so I love supporting them in their endeavors. I think I struggle with um, watching our students be so hard on themselves. Um, I, you know, I, I, of course, I, I can't help but think of myself and, and my own background. I think that's a natural for all of us to do um, when, we, when we look around. And, and I, I often tell students, you know, you're so much brighter and you have so much more going for you than I did at your age. And you know, being at a place like Cornell and obviously with the intelligence and the, the success that, that 
anyone who's here is, has already achieved. Yet our students have this perpetual and constant feeling like they're not doing enough and that, you know, they're the imposter syndrome and that's real. And I've experienced that a lot in my life. Um, it, 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 it makes me sad that, that, um, that students are so hard on themselves because from my seat, y'all are extraordinary and you are going to do extraordinary things and you're already in an extraordinary position in relation to 99.8% of the rest of the world. And I just would like to see people give themselves and each other a little more space and a little more grace um, and just know how how much you're okay and you're doing enough and you're good enough by far better than good enough as you are without having to push yourself harder. Thank you for saying that. I think these were <laughs> very much required for, for this time of the semester. And with that, I'll pose a last closing question for Ken. Do you want to share any advice for students who are listening in right now? I'm not sure that I can do any, any better than what Ryan just did. Uh, I, I would share his sentiments completely. And I, I think it's, you know, it's understandable that the students put pressure on themselves and there's always a tendency to, to be comparing yourself to somebody else. And, and we have some extraordinarily gifted and accomplished students who are here, but, uh, but, but every student who is here is gifted and accomplished. They, they can't get here if they're not. And the key thing, I, I always, one of the things that, that I find troubling are when students are feeling that they have to live up to certain expectations that their parents, you know, relatives have, or, you know, the families and in terms of what they should be studying, what they should be doing when they get out of college. And, and um, I think it's really important for students to, to chart their own course and to follow, follow your passions, study what you find most interesting and and don't worry about the reports that tell you there are x number of jobs for in this area and the salaries are, or starting salaries are at a certain level whereas in another area there are fewer positions and and you know lower pay don't i i don't think students should pay any attention to that stuff if you you know as bright as you are if you follow your passions and what you're really interested in doing, you'll open doors. I can assure you, you'll open doors and, and you'll be happier. And at the end of the day, you'll be, you know, you'll, you'll make as much money uh, or you'll do just as well professionally. You'll find ways to make it work. And um, I, that's one of the things that I, you know, I've been on admissions committees and things and I've talked to students who really want to, major in something, but, you know, their parents don't want them to do that. And their parents are putting the bill for them to be here and they feel obligated to do something else. And, and that always is, is, is something that, that troubles me um, because I, I think students do best when they follow their passion. It's great advice, Kevin. Thank you so much. Thank you, both of you. This, this was a great session.